Everyone who wishes to read a poem this morning, who is a paid-up member, can sign up on the sheet. Please. The sheet is here. Has everybody signed up who wants to read a poem? Yes. Are we reading anything else or just poetry? Just for <laughs> Our first reader will be Howard Camden. Howard has published 20 books. 20, is that 20? Is that right? Nine? 18. 18, okay. But I'll take 20. <laughs> and, uh, is poems from the Mudroom your finalist for the Pulitzer Prize? Finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Poems from the Mudroom. And his books are in world libraries such as the Library of Congress and even the Vatican Library. And he was New Times Best Poet and uh, in Miami Dade's College's Hall of Fame. So there. <laughs> so Howard, why don't you start us off? Thank you. Uh, if I was going to introduce myself, I was going to say I've known, I've been friends with Jonathan Rose for just about 40 years, Whoa. which is, doesn't make sense because he's 27 and I'm 25. <laughs> so it's, uh, we hit some kind of time warp thing there, but you know, what can you do? All right, this, uh, this is also national, not national, well, it is national. It's Earth Month. I don't know, it's not only Poetry Month, it's also Earth Month. And Earth Day is coming the 20-something. 22nd. So I'm going to combine the two of them, Poetry and, and Earth Day. And this is Ode to Mother Earth. When the old man hit the road, she was left to raise us alone. She did what she could, but it wasn't good enough. We still became ungrateful bastards. We trampled her soul, pierced her heart, and poisoned her waters. We cut her into pieces and sold her out. We dumped at her door, set fire to her crown, and raped her flesh. She offered her milk and we sucked the life out of her. She gave us beauty, and we murdered it. We murdered it. That is what we do. We are human. We caught it in our sights and pulled the trigger and chopped its head off and hung it on the wall. We're proud of our sickness. We brag about it. We celebrate our disease. And Mother Earth, Mother Earth, she takes it all in stride.
knowing that the time will come when we'll all return home to her looking for sympathy and she'll put us to bed and cover us up and grind our bones into dust. lived in New York and that was 79, 80, 81 and I was involved with the literary outlaws and, and uh, different poetry. That's when I really got deeply into to poetry. Um, my headquarters was the West End Cafe which was across from Columbia University and the beat poets used to perform there and we were kind of like their the offshoot and um, there was a waitress there named Katie, and Katie kept me alive because being a poet in New York is, you know, you don't get rich. Anyway, so she, she would bring me, sneak me food, and, and she kept me alive, but she was uh, an interesting character. The wires didn't touch, as I like to say. So this is one last kiss for Katie. Your spastic arms and psychosomatic legs have me dreaming. How can I repay you for the plaster cast of your foot which you gave to me to kiss every night before I go to sleep? But it never occurred to you that I might not ever sleep, did it? You assume too much. You talk too much. Your corn cob pipe and your rabbi's cane are nothing but substitutes. Nietzsche hides under your bed. King James lies beside your bed. Anyone can lie in your bed, and most everybody does. Your 75 cent sweater from the tenants union has me desperate. When you come to my room at four o'clock in the morning and I answer wearing nothing but grease paint and clown white, you're as crazy as I am, you say, but you assume too much. You talk too much. Of your last breakdown, your manic episodes, banging on piano keys, shouting, screw Beethoven. And if I wasn't there to stop you, you probably would have. <laughs> Running into the bar, wearing your 75 cent sweater from the tenants union, imitating everybody, like you imitate monkeys when you go to the zoo. You stood outside the conservatory and exposed yourself, screaming, try this piece. <laughs> so they strapped you down to a gurney, and they wheeled you into hell. They locked you in a rubber room, and they watched you bounce off walls. They tied lithium to a string, and they dragged it through a nightmare, and you followed limping along with your rabbi's cane and your corn cob pipe and your 75 cent sweater from the tenant union. You followed with your poetry in one hand and mine in the other. You slapped them together and day turned into night. And you remembered how we walked down Broadway 
taking turns destroying each other and stealing fruit, not out of fun, but out of hunger. What are psychosomatic legs? Yeah. Those are legs that, that she didn't know if she had them or not. She wasn't sure. Yeah. Okay, this is, I don't, I don't really write love poems or romantic things, as you can tell, but uh, I gave it a shot. This is called Sleazy Mona Finkeldink. With one grandchild on her knee and one on her lap and three in a cage, and four on the floor. Sleazy Mona Finkeldink recollects them good old days like Uncle Remus beaten senseless. She tells her grandkids of her decadent decade when she would take on nine guys at once. Seven as in one in every slot, plus two in hand for luck. That led to a floundering film career as a B-movie screen queen, which led to a quick hitch in the Merchant Marines, and finally to Guadalajara, where she just sat on the beach and stared. The grandkids listened with real interest. They are an odd lot indeed. Each descendant different from the next and each with a different grandfather. Two have great hearing. Two have an acute sense of smell. One has tremendous speaking ability. Two are great with their hands. One is somewhat normal and one stinks to high heaven. I don't make this up. Is <laughs> that the end? Is that the end of the poem? That's the end of the poem. <laughs> okay, I'm going to end with this. Republicans here, I apologize for different reasons, but uh, this is called Political Pull. Just grab it and yank it like it's a staunch Republican who's so mad he could spit. One more, one more. This is called Food for Thought. 
The poet, hungry for light, scratching at windows, reaching for stars, starving for words, rummaging through garbage cans and trash bins, howling behind restaurants, pleading for a morsel, a bone, anything he can chew on, anything he can use. The poet, standing in the pouring rain on the side of the highway, holding a dripping wet cardboard sign that reads, we'll work for food for thought. <coughs> but no one stops to help. They just drive on by and jeer. The poor, unfortunate, bare-handed soul, standing now in a cultural desert, reciting an invocation where the sun bakes them and ideas are as scarce as ice water in hell. Must he lean on cliches to say his piece? Must he survive on cheese pairings and candle ends? The poet claws to create and tries to convince the bird lady that he too is a pigeon, but she doesn't understand. Desperate for sustenance, eager for swill, he turns vicious and threatens the children who feed the ducks. At night, he scales the gate to the zoo, risking life and limb for inspiration, knowing damn well he could be seized by some seething Shakespearean sonnet or mauled by a metaphor. Not a pleasant way to die. But to him, the ecstasy is worth the risk. And when it all falls down and he eventually comes to me, I gaze at the moon to avoid his eyes. You misunderstand, I tell him. Being a poet is not a job or a love of a craft. It's a condition of insanity. shelter of forest to stand erect, long black hair blowing free in the hot dry air. Under clear blue sky, feeling sand stir beneath bare feet as seawater swirls. Hundreds of crabs all sizes scurried across the curving <coughs> expanse of beach. He bent, reached, 
filled his basket. Far out, where horizon met sea, a cloud seemed to have dropped into the sea and was moving purposely toward him. It grew nearer and nearer, stout, brown, bottom, riding high on the waves. It stopped. Big canoes, brown, like bottom of the cloud, lowered. Pale men with shiny chests and pointy, shiny hats climbed down into canoes and rowed ashore. Strangeness disquieted Nantucket, made his heart uneasy. Clasping basket to his chest, he returned to the shelter of the forest. White men with long knives also entered the forest. Nantucket's mind trembled, moved in his skull. Light and dark, sun and moon raced through the heavens. He lived many lives. Now he stood where he'd stood but the forest was gone. In its place, long lines of iron horses, two abreast, sat still on a wide, flat path curving towards the sea. Sweating white people sat in the horses, not on them. Children saw the Nantucket and waved. Adults looked through him as if he was no longer there. Okay. One more, right, John? Maybe another extremely meaningful one. Why did you choose that? Why did I choose that? Did it work for you? <laughs> it did. Because I know the place, but, uh... Right, you know the place, exactly. You can tell from, from there. Okay, this is, uh, again, with apologies to our Republican and conservative <laughs> colleagues. This is a little longer. I'll stop when I'm done. <laughs> it's relatively short. It's called Trump Almighty. <laughs> Right How awesome is the almighty Trump, whose button is bigger than Kim's? Bow down and praise him with gratitude, all ye nations of the earth. He causeth seemingly normal, healthy human beings to cease to, to hear gross lies and vulgar vitriol, and see not corruption and and devastation he creates and leaves in his wake. He awakens sleeping hatreds and fears, feeding on them and growing fat. Cower debased citizens and shithole countries, lest the Almighty One turn his wrath upon you. For he attacks all that disagrees with him, though it is impossible to know where he really stands giving them silly names. <coughs> How blessed are his servants, Kelly and Miller, and his enablers, McConnell and Ryan, 
who once having been persons of principle have found their rightful places as groveling psychophants, endangering the world and betraying their oaths and the nation they allegedly serve. Be not deceived, though their eyes are clear and their voices firm, for they have one master now. Serve him with all their talent and might. All hail the almighty Trump, but pray to the true almighty that this is somehow part of his plan for our ultimate salvation. <laughs> month is an Earth Day, is an Earth Month, and uh, for that reason, I'll read this poem. It's called Creation. <clears throat> One day, a woman giving birth, entire universe brought forth. She flung the starry Milky Way and constellations came to stay. The planets followed coming forth, and after them appeared the Earth. It all has happened very fast. So there was much leftover dust. The stardust beings came to Rome, deciding that the Earth was home. Birth giver said, love one another. I am the life. I am your mother. And just in case you, some, some of the people wonder sometimes when they give out certificates, what it's whoever got the certificate for. I'm going to read two short poems that did get the certificate. One is called Age. Age is only an illusion which in truth does not exist. But the human self-delusion likes to argue and insist. There are many mystic layers floating through the universe. All the spirits that traverse them come together and disperse. We've been giving truth eternal that we go from stage to stage. And the spirit is immortal. There is no such thing as age. Celebrating our essence, beaming <coughs> rays of only endless bliss, we are ageless, iridescent, radiating love and peace. 
the last poem is very short, but I like it very much. Stars. The night has shed its brilliant stars. They fell like diamonds on the grass. Small prisms of light, fragmented bits of every star that there exists. But all the diamonds of the dew turn into vapor, change their hue, becoming clouds gray and white. They fade, and then another night will bring new gift of stars to us by laying diamonds on the grass. Don Daniels. Good morning. I'm not going to do my usual shtick. I usually do humorous poetry. My book, Rhyme and Punishment, is about weird head news headlines that I put into poetry. But this time I can't. My mind is still stuck on February 14th at Parkland. And I keep on remembering about the students and the students who were killed. And that brings me forward to Les Miserables which was not about the French Revolution, it was about a student revolution in 1840. And we're in the middle of another student revolution now. So I took a couple of the songs from there and I rewrote them. Do you hear the thundering guns shooting our innocent children dead? We've had enough of thoughts and prayers, we need some action now instead. They're no longer beating hearts or as still as the will of congressmen. Will we sacrifice to the NRA yet again? Will you stand and vote with us so that our children may survive? Is it too much to ask that they come home from school alive? Make us believe you could leave the NRA hive? Do you hear the thundering guns shooting our innocent children dead? We've had enough of thoughts and prayers. Let's, we need action now instead. All we ask of you is that you use some common sense. Everyone who buys a gun isn't buying it for defense. More background checks could detect some unlawful intents. Then there was the other one about empty chairs and empty tables. Well, I'm doing empty halls and empty classrooms. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a void that can't be filled. There are families that are broken and children who were killed. We respect the Second Amendment. We respect you want your rights, but do you understand our resentment that you refuse to share the price? In these classrooms and these hallways, they dreamed of what they'd be someday, and with their laughter and cell phones ringing, and I can hear them now, they never aspired to be a human sacrifice on the altar of the, I of the NRA. Oh, you kids, you kids, forgive us that we fail to prevent your death in the empty rooms and empty class hallways where you took your last painful breath. 
Please, kids, please, kids, don't ask us what your sacrifice was for. Empty desks and empty hallways. Let us not permit one more. My first poem, as I write excellent punk poetry. Shaman's Lament. Not a cloud in the sky, and the grass is so dry that each step sounds a crunch. Here it's rare, weeks go by with no rain in the sky, and I worry as I eat my lunch. I got hired with my drum for a rum pum 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 and to do my best sacred rain dance. I'm sure it will work, cause with me it's no quirk, and the next morning rain, not by chance. I'm sure that my drum with my rum pum pum pum, but the bums won't pay me my weight sums. At night scary dreams will convince every man that they pay me as quick as they can. Now my political poem, my apologies to the Republican. Trumpy Dumpty sits on a wall. Trumpy Dumpty soon has to fall. All of his flunkies and all in his den can't make Trumpy Dumpty believable again. <laughs> and now every Tuesday I run a meditation group at the Unitarian Church. So here is what I recite from time to time. I call it me in meditation. Just breathe in and breathe out. Do not move too much about. Get comfort from sitting on cushion or chair and relax with your breathing of life-giving air. Just let thoughts in your mind as they come and they go and think of a dark sky where pretty stars glow or the ocean where waves gently wash in and out and parents watch calmly as kids run about. Think warmly of sunlight that calms us to be with the sand at the edge of a beautiful sea so our minds can slow down and at peace truly be. Meditation can show us who we really are and how to spread happiness both near and far. Next, I'd like to introduce Terry Starr. Um, Terry, as you know, runs this wonderful poet soiree on the first Wednesday from 1 to 3. She's written plays, short plays, uh, and, uh, and um, she's, been, she's a former teacher, and here she is. It's April, National Poetry Month again, and poet or not, it's a good time to celebrate poetry and pay homage to the written word. Listen to the poetry of life. Be immortal with your words. Let them soothe you, heal, watch them enter the cosmos, cry out, I am real. Poetry is taking pause, seeing deep, 
stepping away from the day-to-day -day world. It allows us to share our stories, reveal our dreams, and tell our truths. Plato once said, poetry is nearer to vital truth than history. But sadly, these days, truth is getting lost. And so my poem, Ode to Truth. Through complexity, some of our wisest discover simplicity. And there they find truths repeated over and over in simple patterns. These men discover the same things that ancient men knew long ago, and somehow we've forgotten. We can't see truths in the stars anymore. And so truths are truths. Wherever they arise, however we see them, the simple, the wise, we all have this vision placed at our door, and some of us see in it reason. Some see nothing, and some see even more. <laughs> so poets and writers of every kind, let's fulfill the promise of Shelley when he wrote Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. <coughs> and my poem, Confirmation. Myth unveils the deepest layers, conveys our culture more than polls or politics, ancient stories stand. Poetry records, reveals <coughs> the essence of the times, Words resound when in this form, not in recorded history, not in the hallowed chambers where they're written with a plan. Return to myth and poetry, philosophers advise. It's there that primal wisdom can be found. Words that poets write create the future. We're playing out the stories of the gods and the outcome will depend upon the roles we play, the masks we wear, the words that poets say. But of course, it's spring, and I turn to nature because it is, for me, a forever inspiration. Emily Dinkins said, hope is the thing with feathers. And my poem, Arpeggio. I'd almost forgotten how good anticipation feels. But then a blackbird came and sang to me. He ruffled his feathers through his head back, and he sang. Another blackbird joined him. And then another. The trio of grackles created a cacophony. Other species joined them, mourning doves and blue jays, mockingbirds and cardinals, otherwise drawn to water and food. But now, 
each one sang along, and somewhere in the myriad of separate voices, a symphony was formed. The birds sang simple truths of touch and hope, the joys of sharing. Their song, a gift that's left by ancients. And now, with time beside us as we spiral, the harmony resounds, arpeggio, anticipation signals the essential. If I follow, it might even lead to love. Thank you. All the world is full of lonely people. People who would never take a chance. So give your heart away if someone needs it. Now each night they cry and wonder why. Don't be afraid to live. Don't be afraid to give your soul, your heart, your life, your everything. We will always pay, pay, pay the price. We count days and nights. <laughs> Don't be afraid to love. And here is some... <laughs> philosophical little bit. It is what it is. Now, in this moment, yesterday is gone. Tomorrow, a question mark from above. So what is left? Right now, this moment belongs to me. With heaven, sun, moon, birds, tree, as part of me and the chain of cause and outcome could compose a line to a peaceful mind. And I finish uh, as usually the, the haiku and another part of the song for Cohen, which I dedicate and I know some people ask me to sing. A moment just passed, her life into cosmic dust, a bubble, love last. Where's my gypsy love tonight? Gone with wind another side, dancing life and death alone. All is a moment, all is gone. All is a moment, all is gone. Thank you.
You know, I've, I've been coming here for five years, at least once a month, and uh, I love Pinecrest. So I call this poem Pinecrest. Pinecrest glows in July, Royal Ponciana, Crepe Myrtle, Royal Palm. Show me your colors, brighter in the summer sun, tender in falling rain for my hands to touch and fingers to feel the soft water warmed by the sun. Come back to me on your seasonal journey, nestled in unforgotten places of my mind. And I too have a dream. The dream is simply that the police would stop killing black men. And when they stop killing black men, or when they are tired, they choose women too. And I have a dream that they would stop confusing a cell phone with a gun. This I call Emmanuel's Nine. Yesterday and today, your spirit lives in Abraham's bosom where black ancestors met to rock their souls. In Stanford, Ferguson, Queens, Baltimore, Cleveland, Charleston, like strange fallen fruit that will not die or rot from hatred's suicidal fire. Let grace bestow a second birth, nine times nine times nine. The souls of Dubois black folk will emerge from Abraham's bosom to climb every rung of Jacob's ladder, higher and higher. And to my friend who could either be Republican or Democrat, and they're back. Are they? And who are they? They back from the Kremlin to the White House. Hedge fund managers come with everything except regulations. Swindlers return at opportune times to mend broken dreams or fix shattered worlds. They reshuffle bundles of hope, brutish and short-lived. Like skeletons, they come again bearing themselves bone to bone along a walled street where oracles will divine a future, north, south, east, and west, for everything or nothing. And times like this, I need to be really quiet, and uh, the lotus helps me. So I returned near a pond to touch sunlit dewdrops on the leaves of the sprouted and the leaves that sprouted through the bubbles of muddy water in morning's first light. I would return again and again <coughs> to smell the damp earth and grass like this fragile life. The senses that drift away with the morning's first breeze. Only the lotus remains to bless us with the precious jewel of its bloom. 
Ricky? Ricky? Go Happy National Poetry Month to everybody. <laughs> April 26th is Poem in Your Pocket Day. Now on that day, you're supposed to put a couple poems in your pocket, go about your business, and if you meet somebody who might be amenable, take one out and read it to them and maybe give it to them. So, on that note, oh. <laughs> what a surprise. Okay, so we have um, a poem in my pocket, sparky as an electric socket. A poem in my purse, springy as an April verse. A poem in my socks, tastes better than bagels and locks. A poem in a hearse, nothing sadder than a poor dead verse. A poem near the ocean is a wet and salty notion. A poem in the city, too crowded, what a pity. A poem at a Sifwa meeting, hugs and hails and friendly greeting. The next one is a part of my responses to what O Miami is doing, one of the competitions this year, which is O to the zip code. Okay, and my zip code is 33183, and I have a couple of tributes to my zip code. You know that this goes, the first line has the number of words in the first number, etc. Okay. In the city, on the farm, alone, letting environment blend with journeys deep inside, thinking, healing thoughts. 33183. Capturing a glance, responding with verb, smile, following its path and floating on its spiral, releasing my imagination. 33183. A bedroom community, some small malls, traffic, stop signs, roundabouts, yellow lines on concrete, schools, playgrounds, parks. 33183. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as Miami, where one, one where dreams can come true. 33183. My zip code is where I keep my stuff, house, people, computer, while I'm here on planet Earth. <laughs> the third and last poem um, is, a, is from my new book, Poetry, My First Language, my third collection. Also, as it happens, just happens to be 91 poems just like the first one. People often say to me, where do you get ideas for your poems? And of course, the answer is two places, in here and out there. But no topic is really not fair game. And this poem is called Climbing to the Bed. It's a very mundane topic. I climb into the bed and cover up my head. Woolly blankets and percale sheets tangle in the rhythm as my heart beats. Restlessly, I smooth the case of my pillow through open window 
rustles a branch of a willow. The warmth here in the room recalls my time within the womb, where I was safe from all harm, had no cause for any alarm, where I was snug and secure with no trials to adore. So now I turn and then I toss, wondering, did I floss? Pull my arms in close to my chest, letting my knees bend slightly, ready for rest. Then snuggle cozily, way down deep, amid a sigh before falling asleep, submitting to dreams of valleys and streams, until morning smiles and visit from Morpheus ends, blankets and sheets to nocturnal friends. Thank you. people. <laughs> I'm going to read you one very, very short poem. <clears throat> it's called Rude Awakening. Snuggled, warm and comfortable inside the womb, surrounded by warmth and darkness. I didn't want to move, but they said I must after nine months. Suddenly it happened, cold, Bright lights, faces, noise, smack, it hurt, and it's been hurting ever since. My second poem is, uh, I guess you could say, another ode to, to Earth Day, but it's going to take you really, really far away from warm, sweet man. It's called Icecapade. Brittle, bristling fingers, suspended. <coughs> Mammoth, crystalline figurines of trees, bowed, weary with their icy burden, snap, shattering splinters. Twinkling webs hide icy spiders, while miniature spares reflect the sun, capturing shafts of light to match the Milky Way. The wind plays its winter melody on silver slivers of wind chime branches, and an icy teardrop falls for beauty. Thank you. Hello. Uh, I'm working on a thing right now. On Nonfiction thing called Warlords, and it's about the people who profit from, profit from, plan, and lead, create wars because otherwise they, in peacetime, they're nobody. Anyway, this is the miracle that came after World War II. World War II was terrible for a number of reasons. It saw efforts to exterminate one whole ethnic group, blitzkrieg, vast urban destruction by warplanes, by the first missiles and nuclear weapons. Some have considered apocalyptic, an example of runaway technology and a grim reminder of things to come. Cities in Germany, England, and Japan were bombed into rubble. Thousands of ships sunk, tens of thousands of people, planes shot down. And somewhere between 45 and 50 million people died. 
The fighting took place on both sides of the world and driven by the need for oil and raw materials by two of the most industrially advanced uh, nations in the world. Political reasons directing Germany were driven by the absurd master race tech, uh, philosophy of one deranged man who claimed that the Germans were superior to every other race and the Third Reich would last a thousand years. The Japanese had an emperor who had lost control of the country to a military elite that obeyed the violent Bushido and Samira codes from centuries before. Their rape of several of the Chinese well, cities. What? It's not a poem. This is poetry. Mark. Oh, it is? Yeah. This is only for poems. <laughs> Make a poem from those words. <laughs> okay, well, can I conclude it? Sure. Okay. Okay, I. All right. I was surprised that Rick's sending the sign on sheet. Let me conclude really fast. Uh, when the horror was over, people in the war torn areas knew one thing. The war was, besides being pretty, being pretty horrible, really pretty stupid. Before, when the conquered waged war, it was only the soldiers of the conquered that died. Of course, the people in the conquered areas died in great numbers. But in this modern war, even people in the city were decimated in great numbers by men they never even saw. People were began to build out a rubble, and then the United States, at the end, uh, the U.S. in an attempt to avoid the harsh terms of Versailles that enabled Hitler to pass an aid pack in the Marshall Plan. Germany began to build Hitler's car, his, his wars of brave soldiers who fought in the war that few of them survived. It was the Volkswagen. It was. It, it ran well, and pr pretty soon Germany was making millions of Volkswagens sold all over the world, as well as BMWs and Mercedeses. Japan, once considered to have uh, inferior products, began after a couple of decades producing quality Hondas, Toyotas, and Nissans. This whole idea of empire that inspired conquerors at the beginning of time seemed, seemed suddenly absurd. Why does anyone want to go through the messy process, process of conquest if they can get richer by exporting whatever they do best? And no one would die. Thank you. Sorry, I'm not pulling apart. Pardon No, somebody else. Pulling apart. While I find the, uh, my poetry here, I'll start off with some bathroom humor. Here I sit, sadly stinking. No. Okay. Here I sit, sadly thinking, came to write but only stinking. That's it. Again? Here I sit, sadly thinking, came to write, but I'm only stinking. <laughs> I don't get it. Okay. Go to the bathroom. Try it out. Okay, here's some real poetry. I think. <laughs> A moon-filled night on distant shore, 
is what it's called. A moon-filled night I walked, and deeply thought I pondered how wide the universe, how shallow I have wandered. I've delved the world so deeply to search the source of its mysteries, discovered science, philosophies, people, and their histories. T'was not that I, what I had learned that captivated me, rather affectations to my soul, something I could not see. So most elusive and intimate, that which I did truly seek, was that shadow being what within me speaks? Many times as ages passed, a music my heart found. It played to me at silent times and struck me so profound. A moonlit, a moon-filled night, I walked and deeply thoughts I pondered. How many times shall that music play till I need not wander? Okay. <laughs> this one is, uh, is called No Peace I Found Until Heavy was my burdened heart And troubled were my thoughts No peace I found Through their word, words No peace I found Though their words were kind No peace I found Though their deeds were sweet No peace I found Though their gifts were generous, until I opened my heart. Uh, many of us have seen the uh, memorials, the uh, Vietnam War memorial, that <coughs> black granite memorial. Mm -hmm. And, and Yad Vashem in Israel is a really it's, it's dark and uh, the, the memorial in Miami Beach it's, it's very stark it's, it's, it hits you it's a reminder and here's my reminder I love war the stench of death the suffering, the end of breath I love hate and prejudice that fosters war and hopelessness. I love narrow-mindedness, the crucible of Satan's kiss. I love the fundamentalist dogmatic thinking with a fist. I love the bugler's trumpet blow beckoning infantrymen to their deaths to go. <clears throat> I love the clang of tanks and ships of guns and bombs that bodies rips. I love the sword, the scimitar, tools of power, and fear they are. I love people that learn to hate, cause bigotry to flourish, and chaos create. I love war that saddens their hour, that kills my enemies, and brings me to power. I love the darkness that I am, I am Pol Pot, Hitler, Saddam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
I, um, I'm going to end up uh, with a poem that's not mine, but it's been one of my favorites for a long time. See that rhyme? All that is glitter, all that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire will be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. That's from Fellowship of the Ring from Tolkien. One of my favorites. Thank you very much. Next, I'd like to introduce Connie Goodman Malone, my co author. And uh, Connie, besides being an MSW, is a hospice volunteer for Repeat Hospice. Uh, she's an inveterate letter writer to the Herald. Uh, and she has published in books and anthologies. And uh, she's being recognized now nationally by Marcus as uh, an outstanding person. So, Connie. They, they honored me with a, a wonderful work. They, they actually, uh, Humanitarian, which is, it gave me a very lovely high bar to reach in, in my every day. That's a gift. I'll be sharing two free verse poems. The rest will be haiku. I'll be beginning with free verse. In this garden. Here we stand in this lush garden of green at home in the company of trees. And I'll be reading each haiku twice. Because, just because. A burst of orange, beautiful <coughs> poppies fill mountain, enchanting new day. A burst of orange, joyful poppies fill mountain, enchanting new day. Beneath cool night sky, Coyote and Sand Garden finds comfort in rock. Beneath cool night sky, Coyote and Sand Garden finds comfort in rock. Pelican flight. Pelican skims waves, majestic seaplane in flight. All winds wait for you. Pelican flight. Pelican skims waves, majestic seaplane in flight. All winds wait for you. You notice a theme of seasons and nature. Magenta starburst, vibrant orchids, orchid buds in bloom, birth of a flower. Magenta starburst, vibrant orchid buds in bloom, birth of a flower. Twin hummingbirds dance among orange blossoms in a stir of soft light. 
twin hummingbirds dance among orange blossoms in the stir of soft light. Chimes send heaven song. Breezes fill bamboo garden. Sweet spirit lives on. Chimes send heaven song. Breezes fill bamboo garden. Sweet spirit lives on. Great Monterey pines bravely bearing soft brown cones, sacred trees of spring. Great Monterey pines bravely bearing soft brown cones, sacred trees of spring. Peace fills every step. White camellias hold a sun from village of mind. Peace fills Every step, white camellias hold a sun, plum village of mind. Japanese black pine by koi pond blossoms, subtle waters still can flow. Japanese black pine by koi pond blossoms, subtle waters still can flow. And I'll close with, in this twilight, this is what we have to give, love and humor in the glimmering light of every moment as life itself is lived. Namaste. Keitha Burnett, Keitha Burnett. members who wish to read a poem, I'm going to close the reading myself. We'll start with Night Baseball. Thoughts gray with a full moon wend their way to summer evenings, freckled with boys, well-creased mitts, pockets greased with needs foot oil, a sphere in a string squeezed round an autograph Reggie Jackson or in my case as a Detroit Tiger fan, Kirk Gibson. One of us would hit him out. The Louisville Slugger, slugger would sing its solemn thwack like a <coughs> note from the Star Spangled Banner, back when everyone knew the words. Not today's tinny aluminum plink. As shadows swallowed streets, a familiar far-off voice called out, Boys, isn't it getting too dark for you to be playing ball? The shadows are camouflage. The voice dissolves in dusky air. We play on, with each crack of the bat edging back a bit from the less and less visible batsman. Boys, it really is too dark to play now. Somehow we equate not being seen with not being compelled to answer. If there were a street light, we never seemed to be playing under it. Who would have dreamt? from moving home plate from its natural spot where the splotch of discolored sidewalk intersects the Russell's driveway to form the perfect infield. Telephone pole first base, fire hydrant third, 
polished with a diamond-making manhole cover at second. All right, boys, time to get in the house right now. Nobody wanted to be the first, first to admit he couldn't see, first to admit he was tired or weak or afraid. None of us ever wants to spoil the game, to quit, give in, give up. So sometimes we simply play until the ball is lost. Sitting Bull eats ice cream with an epigraph in July 1981, uh, 1881. After Sitting Bull's surrender from Canada, he was taken by steamer to Bismarck, North Dakota, where citizens packed the pier to gawk at the famous chief, and he went to his first hotel as a dinner guest. Sitting Bull eats ice cream. I am learning white man's ways. They are strange, strange as hairs upon the faces of the people. I am told forests are crushed into leaves called newspaper with little black tracks like captured smoke signals. I've seen my image in this newspaper as when gazing into a pool of water. I have heard them call me old chief. This is my 50th summer, only five summers since I lead warriors against long hair called Custer. A half-chewed moon rides the sky. I return south, south from the red-coated land of the great white grandmother, where soldiers speak truth, as one must once one smokes the solemn council pipe. I come home, home through the blue-coated takers of Lakota lands. I will learn to play their white man games to calm their unquiet crowds, look straight into seekers, Seas of lookers with eyes wide open. I will not spread them naked, cover them with honey, as ants strip flesh, burr bones, shut ears forever. One thing I do not understand. How in moon of cherries reddening, white man keeps cold this food called ice cream. It is cold as frost inside lodges with no blankets or buffalo robes. It is too sweet for a man with blood. And now, uh, one that I wrote in Spain a while back, Barcelona Images. The wizened widow, La Pasionaria's country cousin, waits in religious repose on an iron bench along Las Ramblas, pedestrian walkway, center of the city, seat of the Republic, where stun still hum l'international. A curious tourist traps you with his lens. Last time she shuddered, warplanes shattered the serenity of her sleeping village in northern Spain. Her senses reflect senseless scenes from a Picasso she has never seen. Sitting fewer than seven streets from the artist's first studio, she stares at the image developing before swollen eyes. She shrinks inside wrinkles as the shutter shudders, stumbles, shuffles away, serenity shattered once again. Her expression, little that remains of her life, lies drying on the rusted bench.
Whisperings. I used to understand the whisperings of asparagus and Brussels sprouts. Back in my early teens, when I was a philosopher and a vegetarian, I was one with vegetables, not with carrots, at least not with cooked carrots. Cooked carrots did not speak to me, nor cauliflowers, nor radishes and squash. My friends grew green vegetables, the one that mothers pushed, yet more exotic ones at that, Brussels sprouts, asparagus, and lima beans, named for the capital of Peru, but pronounced like the Ohio town. I still wonder, never a peep from the peas, and I adored peas. My mother's Canadian cousin made his fortune in Brussels sprouts, permanent immigrants from fields in Mexico. I remember travels to Toronto to visit during the time that vegetables were speaking to me. They were my confidants. They would whisper poetry in Spanish. Their favorite poet was Neruda. But this was my Twilight Zone experience. The whisperings predated my knowledge of my mother's cousin's farms and in Neruda's poems. Stranger still, I had only begun to learn Spanish, yet I recall understanding almost every whispered words. Vegetables no longer speak to me, perhaps because of the chemicals that coat them, perhaps due to ozone's porous layer. All I know is I strain, I listen, yet hear nothing. No, I strain, I listen, I hear their silence. This is something I wrote in 1987 called Changing Times. The Marlboro Man is dead of emphysema. The banana industry is suing public television for employing its product to demonstrate proper use of condoms. Unheard of till AIDS. It's called The Poet Borrows My Pen. After the university poetry reading, intimate from insufficient interest, moves or is transferred, like a student bored with class, to another smaller room where the poet's voice will not echo off empty chairs, he confesses insecurity, <coughs> requests that I lend him my pen to autograph an assortment of books, diaries, notepads, and napkins. Later on, we seek fulfillment in music. In Coconut Grove, the guitarist strums with open zipper, breaks as a new act, takes and shakes the stage. Is this your mind-blowing woman? I'm his mind-blowing man. The sultry singer strains, uncertain as to gender and key. As I rise to exit, someone shouts, hey, you're the guy who runs the pizza place. I shake my head in response to his erroneous and stentorian rhetorical conclusion, then suddenly recall, I never got my pen back. <laughs> this is, uh, these are following our roses. This first one is one that I actually read to Dr. Ruth herself when I met her in last November. It's called Uncensored. Uninhibited Dr. Ruth timely bearer of sexual truth, would never have had such impact and reach with blunt, unaccented, articulate speech. 
And, and she spoke about that. And the play was about that. This one is called Letter. Puritan New England's Hester Prynne, in her day, wore an A for unspeakable sin. Now, with sex, extramarital, kinky, and group, the fashion would be to wear alphabet soup. <laughs> and the following are uh, Shakespeare roses. This one's called Curious. Poor Polonius, not one of the Polonius, just one who's got, whose service got too cozy. He died for being nosy. Greasy. Ill-fated Romeo was not butter, but oleo. Not a brain in his head, quite unlike the high price spread. Uh, this one, next one's called Cajole. Much ado's Beatrice and Benedict, their wits alert and quick, were not such fast amigos till friends played on their ears. Incisive, indecisive. Hamlet the Dane was a royal pain. It would not have meant a jaunt to me had he determined not to be. <laughs> Outfleshed. Shylock, merchant of Venice, was ineffective as a menace. In fact, he was pathetic. It didn't help to be Semitic. <laughs> uh, this one is called Detached. Anne Boleyn had been dreadfully thin, mortar couturier. An immaterial matter lamented the royal hatter. This is a poem called Roughing It. She had journeyed with off-white gloves by ship, train, and stagecoach from the clean cliffs of Dover to mud and Indians. Off from the stagecoach, off with the off-white gloves. The automobile had been invented, even refined, but not so much that it would have been comfortable crumping through those woods and hills. I pause in the Blue Ridge Mountains, remember that visit to grandmother in the Canadian Rockets, Rockies. Squads of egghorns and pith helmets salute the moss bark. The first blue-winged warbler of spring warbles faintly. Trees still barren, buds barely scrunch through dry leaves. I conjure ragged, restless settlers plodding through virgin wood Wood, feet blistered with miles, flesh gashed by uncleared branches, legs leaden from climbing. Then I scramble down the neat pastel plotted path to my air-conditioned car, back to the hotel, hot shower, a nice drink, and cable TV. And this last one is one of the first ones I wrote. Uh, called Public strip Stripping on a, a Reader's First Feeling When They First Read a Poem Aloud. The nakedness distresses me at first. A prying draft disturbs me as I speak. Both temples throb, I feel my head will burst. When others say, there's no need to be meek, I question, why this dryness in my throat? And think, they stare as if I were a freak. <coughs> I've memorized these lines, know them by rote. They're etched upon my brain, carved deep inside, like woodcuts on which skilled engravers dote. I'm fully dressed. Everybody sees. Yet still I sense that surreptitious breeze. Thank you. And happy poetry.
We have a presentation here. On behalf of the association, we want to say thank you to our special guest and thank you to Jonathan Sue for making him available to us. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Sure, absolutely. Okay. I'm going to do one more. Thank you oh, so sure. much. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. If I can find it. Makes a good poetry week. Hello, everybody. I'm Ellen Book. I'm the manager here. If you don't know me, hello. Hello. Um, we're having an edible book contest. It's You can win, um, we have three prizes. They're all $25 gift certificates to Amazon. And what it is is edible book. Have you ever heard of that? No. Okay, so you take your favorite book and you create a, a visual, a 3D visual in food of that book. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. That sounds great. It's, it's like a pun. Or it's something that is, uh, it has to be all food, kind of like the Rose Parade, where all the floats are made out of flowers. This is going to be food. So if you come here on Saturday, next Saturday, you'll be able to, the, um, no, excuse me, two Saturdays, 21st, you'll be able to see the contestants. And be one yourself if you wish. Go for one of those prizes. Um, if you Google edible book, you'll see all the different kinds that there are. It's really quite funny. And I don't know if you announced it. Do you know about the ode to your zip code? Yes. Okay, that's going on. So I hope you all. Zippos. Zippos. Yeah. Yeah. So here, can I read you mine? Sure. Okay. Well, years ago, I won honorable mention for a night on the town, but the venue was shut down two feet from a dance. And so that was 33134. And then this one sits up Coral Gables. I wrote. Permit me new, permit me old, permit me to boldly grow ten stories up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought you'd like that, a little politics. So I hope you would like to uh, participate in the Edible Book Contest. Now, we have another group that meets, and I need to take out a Promethean board, so I'm sorry to disturb your meeting by moving this computer through here. Thank you. Okay, uh, 
John said I could wrap this up, with, and this is a follow-up on his his last poem, which made me think of this last poem. This was the first poem I wrote, because you mentioned the first poem you wrote, so this kind of inspired it, and this is called The Last Poem. So the first poem I wrote is called The Last Poem. I could have just ended everything right there. Anyway. Okay, the last poem is like the dawn of day, too young to remember, too old to forget. On occasion she soars with words as wings, on the Sabbath, she rests in Parnas's palm. In crowds, she desires to be alone. Alone, she longs to know a touch. The last poem drifts through time like a vagabond unnoticed, like a prelude to a gypsy's prayer. She twirls with eyes of twilight, ending every dark passage with a flame of truth. She is a deathless song. The last poem is a pastoral whore of unspeakable beauty, a contradiction of all that is, and a memorial for those of us who understand. She is a metaphor of no translation and a dark cloud on the horizon. The last poem is a paragon of simplicity, a portrait of a soul and the base-born child of solitude. Aimlessly, she dances through the night in silence, waiting for someone to take her hand and give her voice. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks, John.